The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Legislators in Oregon are looking at legislation to expand and enhance harm reduction services in the state. We'll hear from the chief sponsor and from experts. But first, San Francisco Mayor London Breed and Supervisor Hillary Ronan have introduced a measure to allow legally authorized nonprofits to operate a supervised consumption site or wellness hub in San Francisco. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you, colleagues. Today I'm introducing legislation with uh, Mayor Breed that would repeal an ordinance we passed in 2020 creating a permitting structure for overdose prevention centers. When we passed ordinance number 105-20, the intention was to encourage the creation of overdose prevention centers and align with Senator Weiner's Assembly Bill 362. Unfortunately, Governor Newsom vetoed this bill last year. Because AB 362 was never adopted into law, Ordinance 105-20 was never implemented but remains enforceable. Repealing this ordinance would eliminate a burdensome permitting structure, placing an additional barrier to opening already hard-to-open overdose prevention sites. We know that we desperately need these sites, and by eliminating this roadblock, we can hopefully streamline opening sites this year. We cannot continue to let people die on our streets and let street conditions remain abysmal when we have a proven strategy to improve both situations. I would like to thank the mayor's office and supervisors Preston, Dorsey, and Safai for um, co-sponsoring this ordinance. Second, I'm introducing legislation or a resolution that would exempt the mayor's office and DPH from the behested payment legislation for the purpose of fundraising for safe consumption sites or overdose prevention sites. It would allow both the mayor's office and DPH to solicit donations from private organizations, grant makers, and foundations to support the opening and operations of these sites. Um, that would be operated by local nonprofits in San Francisco. This will allow us to remove yet another barrier to opening these sites and help our nonprofit partners raise funds for these sites. Finally, I'm introducing a hearing request uh, calling um, for a hearing regarding justice involved individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. Uh, this comes after working uh, with a mother whose son has bipolar disorder and opioid addiction and has been incarcerated for 11 months, uh, despite having a bed available at a um, recovery center. Uh, it's been very frustrating trying to find out information about this individual um, and finding out information that hasn't been fully accurate. Specifically, I am requesting information regarding the length of time individuals spend in custody, the reason for the lengthy time served, and the description of treatment provided while in jail and any specific programming to address their underlying disorders. I'm requesting jail health services, uh, DPH, as well as um, the judges of both behavioral health and drug court to attend. Uh, last time we heard from Judge Beggart, which was very instructive. I want to find out, have we progressed in any way, shape, or form, uh, given the 11 months that this individual uh, has spent in jail? Uh, I would suggest we have not improved the situation since the last time we heard this hearing, uh, which is very disappointing. 
That was Supervisor Hillary Ronan, a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. She and San Francisco Mayor London Breed are introducing a measure to allow legally authorized nonprofits to operate a supervised consumption site or wellness hub in San Francisco. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. From California, we go next door to Oregon, where harm reduction is on the state's legislative agenda. The Oregon Legislature's House Committee on Behavioral Health and Health Care held a hearing Monday, January 30th, on House Bill 2395, the Opioid Harm Reduction Omnibus Bill. Let's hear from the bill's lead sponsor, Representative Maxine Dexter, M.D. For the record, my name is Dr. Maxine Dexter, and I'm honored to be the state representative for House District 33, which includes Northwest and downtown Portland, Linton, and Cathedral Park. I'm grateful for this opportunity today to present to you HB 2395 with the Dash 2 Amendment, the Opioid Harm Reduction Omnibus Bill, and to ask for your support. It is impossible to ignore the profoundly tragic impact illicitly manufactured fentanyl and other opioids are having across Oregon. The threat it poses to every member of our community is very real. Our responsibility as elected leaders is to ensure the health and safety of Oregonians. This package is an opportunity to urgently take data-driven action that will start saving lives almost immediately upon passage. I'm grateful to testify to you in solidarity with my colleagues who have made themselves vulnerable and ready to serve in this attempt to pass this package, which will be the culmination of many months of work with partners and experts throughout the state. Courageous leaders across many sectors have leaned in and have elevated the importance of this work to get where we are today, a well-considered bipartisan package that has earned the support of harm reduction advocates, law enforcement, clinicians, students, educators, local governments, and our public health system. I have the privilege of serving my community, not just as a legislator, but also as a practicing pulmonary and critical care physician. Being in practice for more than 20 years, I have experienced firsthand the implementation of policies that led dramatically to increased opiate use and the consequence this has had on my patients and our community. These presumably well-intentioned policies have contributed to nearly a million, a million deaths since 1999. I very much understand how policies can influence the public's health, and too often we don't understand the enormous impact we as policymakers can have, both good and bad. Today I hope you will join me in pursuit of policy changes that can help undo harm that has evolved over 30 years. Before I give an overview of the package, I will help set some context. And please forgive, I think this is important context and it is going to take a couple minutes. Dr. Max Mitchell, the president of the American Pain Society and an NIH research physician, published an editorial in an influential medical journal, The Annals of Internal Medicine, asserting clinicians were categorically under-treating pain. He asserted that patients' pain levels needed to be visible and that clinicians needed to be held accountable for addressing pain. His assertions gained support, and by the time I entered medical school in 1997, pain was adopted as the, quote, fifth vital sign. This was a nationally imposed practice change, which some experts assert was the beginning of the surge of chronic pain medication overuse. This shift in approach did not happen in a vacuum, but it was in intentionally influenced by a very motivated special interest group, drug makers. The movement was led by the Sackler family of Purdue Pharma fame to maximize sales of their new pain medication, OxyContin, which was FDA approved in 1995. 
We now know that this company strategically targeted physicians and policymakers through a massive manipulative outreach. Medical students, residents, and practicing physicians were systematically educated by drug company res representatives about OxyContin, a long-acting sustained release pain medication that they asserted, and I heard this firsthand, was safe, effective, and less likely to cause abuse and addiction than shorter-acting options. Their persistent outreach, made with FDA validation, I will say, proved to be profoundly effective at shaping opioid prescribing practices in our country. By 2001, the year I entered residency, standardized evaluation of medical providers on how aggressively we were treating pain was required, required by the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, otherwise known as JCO. This well-intentioned, again, but woefully under-informed mandate to aggressively treat pain, often with these safe, long-acting narcotics, has had devastating impacts that clinicians continue to grapple with every day today. The reverberating harm that has been done as a result of this shift in national approach to pain control, influenced by those who profited enormously, has been pervasive and devastating. I am also a mother to two teenagers who are growing up in a world where counterfeit pills, often laced with illicitly manufactured fentanyl, can be purchased on Snapchat and delivered to a home without ever leaving their bedroom. The tragic number of youth in our state who have died as a result of unintentional opioid overdoses after taking such pills is a downstream effect of the opioid policies of the past. As a mother who knows very well that teens are developmentally meant to experiment and take risks, I am frightened by the threat these pills pose to all of our children for both their addictive properties as well as their potential to kill with the ingestion of literally just one pill. Although we do our best to educate our children and help them develop skills to make responsible decisions, a single moment of impulsivity can result in fatal consequences. We must do everything in our power to minimize the risk to our children and to our communities. This package will help protect all Oregonians through the following policy changes. And I will just note that the more in-depth changes are noted in my testimony on OLIS. I'm gonna do a really brief overview because of the importance of hearing the remaining people on who have signed up today. First, we will decriminalize the distribution of fentanyl test strips as Megan Turley has so importantly elevated in um, knowledge for all of us and other tools which are proven interventions to reduce the risk of overdose and drug-related death. We will remove barriers to naloxone availability in publicly accessible buildings and will allow the OHA to issue standing prescriptions for short-acting opioid antagonists. The concept ensures that the building owner and anyone who may utilize the available naloxone are protected from civil and criminal liability. We will allow first responders to distribute short-acting opioid antagonist kits to any individual who may need or request one. This will free up capacity to respond to other emergency situations and hopefully better access or increase access in the community to this life-saving category of medications. We will create a fund to bulk purchase opioid reversal medication for distribution to qualifying organizations. And it is not funded yet, but I am serving on the Opioid Settlement Board and there will be funds, I hope, that we can allocate to that end. I don't speak for the committee, but I, it is a priority. <laughs> we will allow cross-county notification when a youth dies as a result of an overdose outside of their home county. This will allow for a localized public health response in the decedent's community. 
we will establish a commission to evaluate existing opioid reporting practices and draft standardized recommendations for statewide improvement. And Representative Morgan, I would um, acknowledge that that could include the requests that you have as well. We will allow clinicians to provide confidential substance use disorder treatment to minors under 15 years only if disclosing their desire for treatment is suspected to put the patient at risk of harm. We will provide protection for school staff from civil and criminal liability should they administer naloxone to students suspected to be suffering from an overdose. Finally, we will change any reference to nalox from naloxone in current statute to short-acting opioid antagonists because there are drugs in development. We want to make sure that the policy is durable and it accommodates all new medications in this class. I am grateful for the many partners who will share their testimony and to each of you for your attention and consideration. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Committee, why don't we engage in about five-ish minutes of questions and we'll see how we do. And then if it, it seems like we have more, then that's fine. If you could keep your question to a question because we'll have time to sort of debate the merits of the policy at a future date, assuming this gets a work session. Um, so, Reverend Conrad, you had your hand up. Does anybody else have a question? Okay, maybe you'll spark another. Go ahead, <laughs> Rep. Conrad. Thank you, up. Chair. I appreciate it. Thank you all very much. I appreciate the testimony. Coming from a non-doctor, what are the health consequences of administering this to somebody who does not need it and who's not? Uh, and are there other other issues downstream that somebody would want to getting into the training side of it? No, thank you so much for the or Chair Nose and Representative Conrad. Thank you for the question. Um, it is absolutely safe to give to anyone if you do not have opioids in your body. It does nothing. It is safer than giving someone Tylenol. Um, if they've had um, opioids in their system, there can be pretty dramatic um, effects. When you revive someone from dead to alive, um, you appreciate the importance of this medication. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Okay. That was Oregon State Representative Maxine Dexter, MD, lead sponsor of House Bill 2395, the Opioid Harm Reduction Omnibus Bill. She testified January 30th before the House Committee on Behavioral Health and Health Care. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Hey, my name's Don Paley. I'm, I'm the author of Drug War Capitalism, and I just want to give a shout out to the people at Drug Truth Network who are doing amazing work to get the stories out. Um, you know, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! talks about trickle-up journalism. I'm a firm believer, you know, believer, you know, like where these stories are being reported first, who's on the ground covering this conference and doing all these interviews? It's Doug McVeigh, Drug Truth Network. So listen up, and, and thanks again for, for your so important work in terms of just getting, getting the truth out there and getting these stories, which are just so repressed in the mainstream media, out to the broader public. Let's hear more from that hearing. The next voice you hear will be Rachel Banks, Public Health Director at the Oregon Health Authority. Uh, Rachel Banks, welcome. Uh, go ahead and take your four minutes. Thank you, uh, Chair Nose, Vice Chairs Nelson and Goodwin, uh, members of the committee. For the record, my name is Rachel Banks. I use she and hers, and I'm the Public Health Director at Oregon Health Authority. I'm here to um, testify today on behalf of OHA and the opioid crisis that we've heard so much about. On average, three Oregonians die each day from unintentional drug overdose, and many more are struggling. Fentanyl and methamphetamine, as we've heard, are the primary drivers and fentanyl overdose deaths increased nearly 600 percent between 2019 and 2021. As fentanyl is 80 to 100 times more potent than morphine and about 50 times more potent than heroin. 
And as it's increasingly being added to other drugs, many people are subjected to fentanyl without even knowing. Despite us seeing similar use across all races and ethnicities or opioid misuse, similar opioid misuse, I should say, some communities are experiencing a greater burden of overdoses. So for example, American Indian, Alaska Native communities, black African American communities, which have already been disproportionately impacted by systemic racism, um, other political injustices, and of course the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated those um, stressors. The OHA prioritizes evidence-based strategies across uh, a continuum, and including prevention, harm reduction, treatment, and recovery. HB 2395 as a policy package would increase prevention efforts across that continuum of drug use to provide immediate solutions that would save lives now. The increasing harm reduction as we know would enable OHA to provide or to purchase the exempted harm reduction tools and distribute them to the many organizations who are working throughout Oregon to working to work with those who are using drugs. Um, and that would include, as we've heard, Narcan or Naloxone. That increase of Naloxone statewide would um, allow our OHA Save Lives Oregon, Salvandado Vidas Oregon Harm Reduction Supply Clearinghouse to distribute Naloxone. And for example, in the past, since 2020, we've distributed over 200,000 doses of Naloxone, and that's when the program began. The, this would implement a standardized statewide reporting system for naloxone, would allow us to systematically track overdoses and identify those overdose trends to enable more rapid, efficient, effective, and informed responses. As we know, many organizations collect information somehow um, in place. Our first crucial steps would need to be to inventory the data systems that are out there to come up with a strategy to integrate them. In conclusion, the legislative concepts included in, the, in this opioid harm reduction policy package are immediate solutions that could be implemented through Oregon's existing infrastructure to help save lives now. And in the longer term, addressing the factors that contribute to substance use and overdoses, including the effects of stigma, racism, and other forms of trauma, will be a crucial aspect of the state's response to overdose crisis. The OHA appreciates the committee considering these critical needs, and I thank you for the opportunity to testify today. Thank you very much for being here. <clears throat> District Attorney Mike Schmidt, one of my favorite constituents. That's right. Please come forward and deliver your testimony, please. Thank you, Chair Nose and Vice Chairs, Representative Goodwin and Representative Nelson. Uh, my name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the District Attorney of Multnomah County. I'm excited to be here today to support uh, the bill before you, in particular, the Dash 2s to HB 2395. Uh, first of all, thank you to the representatives uh, Dexter and Reynolds and Bynum and Graber and, and the incredibly heartbreaking testimony from Representative Hebe. Uh, I appreciate everybody who's put together this thoughtful package of bills designed to reduce harm and save the lives of members of our community who are struggling with addiction and substance abuse orders. Uh, the changes outlined in Representative Dexter's opioid harm reduction package are in keeping with best practices for pre preventing opioid overdose deaths promulgated by uh, SAMHSA and their various toolkits and resource packages. And these measures are a direct response to the needs of our community to meet individuals where they're at 
and provide a safety net to save lives until a person is ready to change. A lot of the things have been covered, so I'm also crossing things off, but I'm gonna go straight to an example. Uh, in a recent treatment court hearing in Multnomah County, a young woman who's a participant in, in this treatment court as part of her sentence of probation, uh, she came into the courtroom. Uh, she was noticeably in rough shape. Uh, she had the shakes, her skin was pale, she nodded off uncontrollably in the courtroom. It was obvious to everybody who was present that she had recently used and was coming off of the high. It was equally obvious that she was very <clears throat> ill. This young woman had a history of drug abuse and had been trying to enroll in substance abuse treatment programs. The court kept her in the courtroom throughout other hearings so that it could observe, could observe whether or not she needed immediate medical attention. At the end of the day, and as she started to rouse a bit, the woman spoke in the court, uh, with the court about her struggles uh, with use and disclosed her recent overdoses on fentanyl and her subsequent revivals through administration of naloxone by a friend. Even though she knew she didn't want to use, she wanted to make changes and was reaching out for help, she was unable to stop. Even with the robust team behind her, a supportive family encouragement of the court, she was unable to stop her use. That day in court, the judge spoke with her about the realistic <clears throat> harm reduction techniques and at the end of the docket sent her home with additional naloxone kits. In the few weeks since that day, she's begun engaging in treatment and is starting to manage her substance use disorder. Her use of fentanyl has subsided, but of course she remains at extremely high risk of overdose, and the court and the treatment team make sure that she has kits available should she relapse. There's a perception that making short-acting opioid antagonists available to users encourages them to use more. Maybe the thought is that by knowing a life-saving tool is available, people will engage in riskier behaviors. But that perception is not borne out by the evidence or experience. A recent meta-analysis of seven studies, including 2,578 participants, found no evidence that naloxone kits increased opioid use or overdose. In fact, studies are ongoing whether the effect of immediate opi opioid withdrawal following administration of naloxone acts as a springboard onto a path towards change, as hopefully we've seen in our drug courts. From what my office observes in the criminal justice system, the vast majority of individuals who interact with the criminal system who have substance use disorders are not seeking naloxone so they can continue to use without consequence. They are seeking to, naloxone so they can continue to live for another day. Aiden Wicklock, please introduce yourself for the record and try to keep your testimony to four minutes. I will do. I will do my very best. Chair knows Vice Chair Goodwin and Nelson. My name is Haven Wheelock. Um, I am here today to support House Bill 2395 and its amendments. Um, I have had the honor of working in the field of harm reduction for over 20 years. So I work directly with people who are actively using heroin, methamphetamines more recently fentanyl. Um, and I, I have seen the ways that harm reduction has saved lives. Like th that way these, these interventions really serve to keep people alive today, to empower health and to empower change. I've, wit I've witnessed the transformations that can happen when people have the time, space and tools that they need to change their lives. And I really do believe that this like suite of bills is crucially important in this time for us to pass. Based on what we've already heard, I don't need to go into the numbers about how crushing and heartbreaking this current crisis of overdose is. Um, but I do wanna call out that 
hundreds of people are losing family members. Those are holes in their communities, they're holes in these families. I personally am losing about one person I know every week. Um, I've had weeks where I've lost up to four or five people that I have worked with in one week period. Our drug supply and how people are do using drugs are changing in a way that I have never seen before. 20 years, I've never seen like what we're seeing now. And as our drugs are changing, these new drugs are emerging, the threats associated with these drugs and the health consequences of these drugs <clears throat> are different than they were before. And I would be lying if I said I am not terrified about one, where we're at right now, and what's coming as our drug supply starts to change even further. Um, looking to the East Coast, looking to Canada, fentanyl is not our scariest problem. And what's, what's coming is scarier. Um, and for me, harm reduction are practical tools that center the individual you are working with and their goals and their desires for health and safety in ways that are really beautiful. It is evidence-based practices supported by SAMHSA, by NIDA, by the CDC to provide these mechanisms. It, we know that they work to reduce overdose death. They work to reduce HIV and hepatitis C, other injuries like endocarditis, osteomyelitis that are associated with drug use. Um, we also know that harm reduction strategies and harm reduction services really serve to protect and promote um, access to healthcare for people who use drugs, as well as behavioral health services, and for folks living with substance use disorder, because not all people using drugs have a substance use disorder. It does increase people accessing treatment as well. While harm reduction efforts alone will not end our current addiction crisis, without harm reduction services, we will predict to see hundreds to thousands of more lives lost. <clears throat> this package of policies will do a lot to save lives. It will help improve access for naloxone. Naloxone is a cheap, effective medication that can restore someone's breathing when they're experiencing an overdose. I have personally administered naloxone to over 40 people in my career. It is bananas. <laughs> to see someone go from not breathing, blue, unable to speak to you, to walking, talking, and like willing to engage in a matter of moments. Even though we've had laws in Oregon to allow people to have carry and use naloxone for a decade, there are still many places that are hesitant to have this medication on board. This package of bills will help make people feel more confident to have these medications in their restaurants, in their fire trucks to distribute in their schools, in the places where people need to have access to it. Um, it will also standardize how overdose deaths are investigated. Um, and th that gives our public health authorities a real clear idea of what is happening in our community and lets organizations like mine really strategize the best places to be targeting and have all the information we need to create good response plans. Um, the most exciting thing to me in this package is the changes that will happen for our Good Samaritan, or sorry, to our drug paraphernalia law. I brought with me today some you tools too. of harm reduction. Kind of yep, I'm on it. Fentanyl test kits save lives. We know that people, if they know they are exposed to fentanyl, they will change their behavior to be safer. That may include doing things like smoking their drugs instead of eating them or injecting them. It's safer behavior. Um, Currently, only a small subset of programs are allowed to distribute these um, kinds of supplies. 
And I'm going to stop because I can keep going and I won't. And I have to cut you off. You just heard Haven Wheelock, Drug Users Health Services Program Supervisor with Portland Area Nonprofit Outside In. Before Haven, you heard Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt, who was preceded by Rachel Banks, Public Health Director at the Oregon Health Authority. They testified before the Oregon State Legislature's House Committee on Behavioral Health and Health Care on January 30th in support of House Bill 2395, the Opioid Harm Reduction Omnibus Bill. We'll continue covering House Bill 2395 as it proceeds through the Oregon legislature and, of course, more about other pieces of legislation going through state and local governments on harm reduction and other drug policy reforms. For now, though, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For, for the now, Drug Truth this is Network, Doug McVeigh this is Doug so McVeigh long. asking you to examine so our policy of drug prohibition, the Century of Lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy.